Welcome to another edition of Within WordPress, your favorite podcast of WordPress and the people within the world of WordPress. Uh, today with us is a very special guest. Um, I've known, I think most of you listening or watching have known um, Jason Cohen for probably over a decade. If you're if you're somewhat invested in WordPress, you have seen uh, some of Jason's products. There's no doubt about it. Uh, welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Uh, appreciate it. Um, I'm I'm kind of already hinting at uh, uh, people kind of have to know you, should know you somehow. What would that be? <laughs> well, for the last 13 years, I founded and and uh, have been at WP Engine, and we are the premier managed WordPress platform. Um, uh -huh. At the moment, according to W3 Techs, which is the same organization that we get the number of 43% of the internet being WordPress, we're yep. the eighth or seventh, depending on which month you look at, um, largest website platform. And I don't mean WordPress, I mean period of all websites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that means websites of all shapes and sizes from all over the world kind of has That's to um, for that kind of scale. And uh, so WP Engine is, was bootstrapped actually for the first few years, then we started raising money. Now we have about 1,200 people globally, um, about 200,000 customers running millions of websites. And so that's you know often how uh, people know. But this is my fourth startup, um, even though it's been 13 years, so it's been quite a while, but I've been doing this for even longer. And uh, so online, my, um, my handle like on Twitter and so on is a smart bear because the previous startup was called Smart Bear. So this was in the 2000s, and uh, we did peer code review software. So software developers reviewing each other's work, just like authors and editors do, and just like yeah. lots and lots of people do now with GitHub and stuff, but none of that stuff existed then. So we invented the modern way to do that, and we uh, championed and uh, th that it should be done at all. And so the sort of all the modern stuff about it, we had the largest case studies ever done in the world, um, with thousands oh, and wow. thousands of reviews to try to figure out what what works well and what's a waste of time. Published a book about it called The Best Kept Secrets of Peer Code Review. Very, very enticing title, I know. Um, yeah. So these are ways that I was originally uh, uh, well-known in the developer world. And that's where I started writing the blog, which is called A Smart Bear. So again, the online identity. So that's why that's my online identity even now, now that, uh, not, now that that name doesn't really mean anything, <laughs> you know, in, in WordPress. Oh, that company continues. That company's a, a unicorn. It was sold for $2 billion a couple of years ago. Um, so it's nice, even though, of course, I haven't been there for so long. It's really nice when something you started um, has that kind of longevity. It must There must be something real there if in tech it lasts for 20 years and is still growing. Uh, oh, that's, that means something good was happening there. Didn't they want the handle when you, uh, when you left? So they have Smart Bear, and I have a Smart Bear. Which is confusing and silly, but you know it's it's not been a problem, so it's okay. Cool. Yeah, so that's that's a huge um, uh, achievement in and in of its own. And then you went on to do a second one. I, I should mention too that Smart Bear was only bootstrapped. Okay. And uh, I did other things before that, other startups before that uh, as well. So long history of bootstrapping. And in fact, even WP Engine, again, was bootstrapped at first. So I always thought of myself as a bootstrapper, and I was for a long time. And uh, then with WP Engine, when the, it was clear that the opportunity was huge, and also it, it, WP Engine is my fourth company, I thought maybe this time a different journey. Maybe this time the journey where you raise money and yeah. have different goals, different constraints, and so on. And so um, in 2000, late 2012, WP Engine was started in early 2010. In late 2012, I'm sorry, to that late 2011, sorry, um, raised uh, um, our first small round. Of course, now we've raised over 300 million. So in the years that came, um, we raised a lot more money. But uh, um, uh, and, 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 but but always in proportion to how big we actually were in terms of things like revenue. So, yeah. um, you know, we, an appropriate amount for the size of the company. Would you, would you say that's been a pivotal change to start receiving funding early on or? In hindsight, you know, um, how, how big of an impact has that been in terms of growth? Um, 
well, it's a huge impact in terms of goals and what you do, what you prioritize, and of course the funding that you have to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, how much did the money itself uh, it, uh, 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 contribute to that? Hard to say because, for example, where our, so where growth was always good from the beginning, we were profitable early on and uh, and stayed that way. That was part of why it was easy to raise money. And uh, however, in in uh, January of 2012, so this was just a few months after we had raised money. So the fact yep. of raising money hadn't um, hadn't done anything yet. <laughs> you know, we hadn't started spending it yet, right. or doing anything yet, hadn't hired anyone yet. For example, um, the growth of the company just took off like it was already good and then it just bent and and just absolutely rocket shipped and never stopped like you know that 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 curve never stopped um, going up and mm -hmm. um what i attribute to that is uh and because it's hard to tell because you can't run the experiment more than once so it's hard to yeah. know for sure but some things that were happening around there that i think helped is we made a big pricing change in that you know right then and one of that one of that was lowering the lowest price from 50 to 29 dollars for the lowest plan yeah uh, another one was at the time a quote-unquote innovation everyone followed right away as well they should um which is to allow people to have more than one installation of wordpress in an account so what yeah. would happen is people would say look my main my biggest uh site or my biggest client i'm willing to pay 100 bucks a month for that but i also have this little site on the side or this thing for my mom and are you going to make me keep that that dream hoster somewhere? Like, let me just throw that in. It doesn't get any traffic. And they were right. And so our that that next plan, we had up to ten sites uh, that you could have there. Yep. So that I think helped a lot. Again, listening to customers and and, and responding to them. I, we didn't invent that out of whole cloth. That was listening. Um, another change was our largest plan was called business, and had a phone number just in case you uh, were a business. Maybe you'd pick it. I don't think that worked. By the way, I don't think people were fooled by that, but we did it for what, for what it's worth. Another thing that was important, and I'm listening all listing all this not for historical record, but because this is the kind of thing that might still be useful today, like this kind of line of thinking or these yeah. these things. You know, it could be useful for anybody. That's why that's why I'm listing it. Another one is we had a 15 day free trial, so you put in a credit card. We don't charge it for two weeks. You can cancel in there, and we still haven't charged it. But then we start charging after two weeks if you're still there. Yeah. And people were staying like 90 plus percent of the time. So that in other words, people were coming in, they were already ready to go. Yeah. So that meant we were just losing two weeks of revenue, which I didn't like because we're bootstrapped. I need all the money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dollar. You know, it's, it's all precious. Give me, give me, give me. <laughs> but still, like uh it's nice to have it's nice to have some sort of protection at the beginning, right? So to, to help people get over the hump of trying it. So yeah. Instead, we made a sixteen a sixty day money back guarantee, so we're going to start charging you on day one, but we'll refund it in the first sixty days. And I actually expected signups to go down because I felt like free trial is still better than money back, mm -hmm. uh, and I felt like people might be suspicious that maybe we wouldn't give their money back or something. You know, like do you really trust us to do that? Of course, we always did, but you know, would would a stranger trust us? I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like more of a risk. So I, I expect signups to go down, but signups went up. And when I asked people about it, they said, oh, that's good because two weeks wasn't enough time. But now that I have like 60 days, that's enough time. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, okay. So they were keying more on the time frame in which it could be free rather than you know whether two weeks was actually free. So that was interesting. I didn't know that. In fact, again, I expected the opposite. So I learned something. Yeah, so, that's an interesting one. So we, to this day, have that. And again, a lot of our competitors do too. And I, I'm not saying that in a bad way. We 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 have copied features and things from competitors that we think are smart, and other people copy us when they think we're smart, and that's you know that's that's natural. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I'm 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 wondering if the uh, so the money back guarantee uh, from a, a European is a, a not very often used tactic here. Um, would you? Is there any correlation between? Um, the number of signups and them mostly being US based type clients or well, again, I, I don't know because we didn't do a test like that. We just did it and we still do it and we don't think about it. So um it'd be interesting to see. I know what you mean. There's kind of famously stuff like Caterpillar and and other um American companies coming into Germany, for example, and saying, Yeah, we have this one year warranty. 
And then the Germans said, why is it going to break in a year? And they're like, well, you know, just in case. And the Germans are like, no, like I don't want something that's going to break in a year. And they're like, yeah, but if it breaks, we'll fix it. And the Germans are like, we have our own, uh, we have, we have our own technicians. Like if it breaks, we will fix it because we're going to maintain this thing for 20, 30, 40 years because that's what we do. Uh, but if and you're saying it's going to break that quickly, it must be crap. And so, the, it, just as you're saying this, uh, that that's not exactly the same, but it's analogous. Uh, it, like, are oh, you absolutely. suggesting it's crappy uh, quality? You know, <laughs> there are most certainly uh, uh, very different uh, expectations from uh, from country to country or continent to continent. Yeah. Um, and, and and for me, the the 30 day or 60 day money back guarantee, I, I always see that as a. Uh, I mean, I know better now, but you know. Um, first coming online and, and purchasing American stuff. Like, that's a weird thing to do. Why would you do that? Like, yeah, I mean, clearly you could test in different um, geographies or at different price points, et cetera, and, and see whether different things work. That's obviously a good idea if you have the quantity to test with, you know. Um, yeah. The thing is, there's so many other factors there, like selling in Germany, whether you have a money-back guarantee, it could be part of it, but I'll bet other things are much more important. Um, oh, for uh, sure. You know, so so it might not be the first thing you do to try to yeah. to try to sell more in Germany. Germany is actually especially hard, as as I know you know. Um, in general, uh, for a, a non-German company, does not just come. You do not one does not just walk into Mordor. One does not no. just walk into Germany and sell. That's not at all how it works in no. Germany. Um, so uh, I think there's other considerations before you worry about that. Yeah, is that is that a because that's a, that's an interesting uh, topic because. Um... Um, so the audience uh, listening to the best to, to this podcast is uh, uh, essentially from all over the globe. Um, we, uh, I think, you and I both know that uh, the American point of view, the the American centric uh, approach to markets, is uh, quite dominant inside the WordPress uh, ecosphere. Um, the, the the realization that it's obviously not. Um, how quickly did you learn about that as you were growing the company? Because I'm imagining. Um, it started mostly in the U S or did you, I mean, we, we were physically in the U S at first. That's right. And most of our customers were in the U S of course, that's even true of a lot of companies in Europe that a lot of their customers are in the U S cause that's who buys a lot of tech. So that's not unusual yeah. anyway. Um, since this wasn't my first, uh, rodeo and this first, mo- the first time I saw the movie, this wasn't a surprise, but it's, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it certainly, I think, um, for an American, it can be a surprise the first time that you see it. And really, each country has its own its own shape and its own ways of doing things and its own expectations. And, you know, so some of the smaller countries are more willing to just kind of go along with things. Like selling in Scandinavia doesn't feel that different than, than se- selling in England. And also, they don't like it when you call it Scandinavia. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, South Korea is pretty easy. They're very tech forward. In fact, they usually are topping the charts on, you know, how many people have band, high bandwidth access and this sort of thing. Whereas um, Japan is almost impossible from outside Japan. S- something like Germany, but even worse. So there's oh. just these, these, these characteristics. Um, you know, there's currency, of course. Do you want yep. to use euro and, and the pound and Australian dollars and Canadian dollars, of course, in the U.S.? And, at first people generally don't because it's hard um and then it's one of those things that you sometimes do later of course then you have currency uh currency risk in terms of your financials um for example the cloud providers all charge in dollars and so if your prices for for us as a a hosting platform right if your prices are in euro which ours we we do do that by the way we we have five currencies we support five currencies that is um and your but your costs are in dollars then the currency changes matter because it can dramatically change your margins which is neither your fault nor your customer's fault you know and yet there it is so yeah yeah that that kind of complexity is probably not you know useful to bring on board until you're ready to deal with it yeah no because um i i would imagine uh growing a company um as large as you've grown uh, and i'm mostly focusing on wp engine because that's the one i know best yeah, uh, you have been running into all types of different types of uh, WordPress companies, whether that's an agency, a small business owner, enterprise, and and 
anything and everything that comes in between. Um, and you've dealt with many different types of business cases and problems to be solved. So one of the, one of the questions I had, which I thought would be fun to ask you, um, from a, if you look at the, the WordPress market, like the, the, the folks making up the community, um, starting, most people start using WordPress, not because it's a conscious decision, because at that point it's the CMS they understand and. Uh, they can work with it, and as they then grow their business, let's let's, let's take an agency as an example. Um, they are then kind of forced into understanding the business side of things, right? You mm -hmm. start from, I can solve this. That's tech, wonderful. Right. But then I have to run a business alongside. Excuse me, alongside of understanding the tech. So you you cross different levels of growth as a as a company starting somewhere um from your perspective what is the best advice you can give here for folks finding themselves somewhere along that growth path i mean it uh it, it would certainly depend on all the circumstances so for example um product companies versus uh service companies are quite different in fact it's mm -hmm. and, and one of the things service companies often want to do is make a product because they want to have something that's uh repeatable and, and not yep. tied to hours and they, they almost always fail by the way because it's really different kind of business and uh and yeah. service businesses uh because um because you get paid by the hour if there's ever a chance to get more hours you take it but those hours come away from the product and the product starves and that's not a good way to make the product that's one of the reasons why they don't work um but uh with it, it, I would say I would so so it's hard to find advice that's just generic across every kind of company and every size. But one thing I would say is this: it's useful to because maybe we can take certain cases and 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 look at them um, and get more specific. But one thing I would say is fairly universal: is it's useful to ask what the one or two major challenges are that you've got to address now that's holding the business back the most. So you could say that's your biggest bottleneck or just your biggest obstacle in your path. And really identify carefully what it is. Half the battle is just carefully identifying what it is, and of course the other half is focusing on, on, on uh, addressing it. So, for example, mm -hmm. in a in a in a consulting company, often that challenge is the feast or famine problem, where either you know you don't have enough work and you have all this bench time and you don't know what to do, and again maybe you half build a product, which again doesn't really lead to anywhere. Um, but then all of a sudden two jobs, three jobs comes in and you, you have too much work, but you push through it anyways because you need to. So there's that, uh, they call it feast or famine or you could call it a roller coaster or whatever. But often like that's the problem. The biggest problem is, is uh, getting clients, but getting it also in a, in a, cer in, in a certain time fashion that's, that you can service. Properly. Um, so, you know, if, if that's true, then that's something to specifically try to address. A lot of times people just throw up their hands and say, that's just how it is. Maybe, but if that's the biggest problem, then that's not necessarily just how it is. Maybe you have a pool, for example, with other consultants and, and, and together you're able to get more, um, more regular deal flow coming in and, and mm -hmm. more easily, you know, timing that's more easy. Or maybe you um, have kind of a stable of subcontractors that, that work out so that when there's more deals, you're not crushed. That's, and so you might make less money per deal, but that's okay because you're able to um, even out the the the, uh, uh, the money that's coming in. Um, or maybe it's a different kind of customer you want. Um, so in other words, if you have customers that that hire you for nine months to do a, a larger job, um, in some ways that's a little bit more stable than having uh, little jobs that take four weeks, but then you're, it's, it's, it's this constant thing of trying to come in and out and so forth. Or maybe vice versa, because you have a process for those four weeks that are just really good. And so actually that's easier for you. So obviously you have to, obviously it also depends on what you're good at and what you want to do, but there's so many different ways you could approach a challenge like that and ask what kinds of things could I do about it? Mm -hmm. um, with product, um, if, it's an, if it's early on, usually the problem with the product is distribution, meaning sales and marketing, like not enough people are coming in and buying it. It's usually not features, but often the people who made the product are engineers, maybe product people who love features. And what they want to do is be in the, in the IDE making features and they yep. don't want to be making websites and selling and going, you know, making ads and working on all that stuff. They don't want to, they want to make a feature. And so they do. And 
So, so often, not always, but often the, therefore the problem is you're not doing well on distribution. You're making another feature and, and not enough people are buying the thing. And so you can't quit your day job yet and, or the things just isn't paying for itself and so on. And it isn't going to while you just sit there adding features and still no one knows who you are and knows that you exist. Um, so um, where the problem is really worth solving, like it's just not that, not that big a deal. And so, yeah, you did it and no one cares, you know, and they really, no one cares in fact, and no one wants to pay to solve that problem. In fact, so it's the just a hobby. A it turns out. Product. Yeah. I was going to say the, the example of a brilliant product, uh, with beautiful features works wonderfully. Nobody knows. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very no, common, right? It's far more common quite, than the case of, wow, everybody knows about this product, but it's terrible. And they, they can't add features like that happens very rarely, which just shows you that that's why I mean, like it's usually erring on the other sides. So that's usually the main yeah. challenge there. So I, I would say, what is that, what is that thing holding you back or what's really what the company needs solved the most right now? And make sure you're spending at least 50% of your time on that. Um, so that, because that's, what's going to improve the company. And I think people just don't want to face whatever that truth is, or maybe they don't know, they don't know how to root out what it is. That's, that's one thing. But maybe they yeah. know and they just don't want to admit it because they don't want to do it. And so um, I would say that that's fairly generic uh, advice that makes sense. I think it does. Because um, I think my translation is essentially uh, instead of just uh, um, um, living from day to day, uh, you start to do whatever you're doing more intentionally um, and pick, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And is this the way I want? Yes, great. Continue to improve that. But if that's not exactly what I want, if I am doing service and I want to add products, then not only make that decision, also make the decision on how you're going to do it and understand that yeah. marketing is a very, very large component um, connected to that. Yeah. Um, at least that's my translation of what you're, uh, what you're saying. For the, um, so that, that's, a, that's, I, I consider that more of the, the business type of, uh, uh, starting out, but, uh, let's, let's say you are, you're, um, a little larger, let's say you have, maybe you've had your first growth spurt, you growth spurt, you went from, uh, uh, one person to, um, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10, uh, people. And you, you hit that next sort of natural limit of what is comfortable, what is doing good. And, um, in exploring sort of the, the, the next things to do. Um, any advice for that category? Cause in, from, from where I'm looking, that's becoming quite a large category because, you know, let's say you started 10 years ago with WordPress when it became uh, really feasible to build all different kinds of things on it. I think mm -hmm. it's probably more than 12 years ago, but you've had about 10 years of slow growth and went just perfectly smooth, but now you're hitting that first bump. What is the, what is the thing they're missing? Yeah. Besides so, um, uh, yeah, again, there's probably a couple of things. Here's a couple of things I think are, are common patterns around that time. So first of all, you said nine or 10 people. I do think around, around that moment, 10 people, a dozen people, you have an internal limit, which is you, you no longer can just have one leader and everyone reports to that leader and everyone knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, it, or at least if you do, it's, it's unhealthy in a certain way, meaning you can't give people enough attention and so forth. So you start having management for the first time. Like there's a manager somewhere. So often it's, it's an engineering manager or a support manager, just because that's where usually most of the human beings are at that size. <clears throat> um, it's because it's just ho however many, whatever you have the most of in a title, that's probably what you need a manager for to collect, you know, yeah. the most number of people yeah. under someone. You could have something like a so-called COO. Obviously, that's a big title for a company that's small, but something of that nature where it's like all the ops, all the stuff that's not product engineering uh, could go under somebody. That also makes sense. So there's different forms. But the point is there's a manager all of a sudden that's not the founder or not the CEO anyway. And that is really different because suddenly um, not everyone's talking to everyone in every meeting. Not everyone knows everything anymore by osmosis. So all of a sudden communication internally becomes a thing and it was, wasn't a thing before. Um, of course that gets much, much worse at scale. Like that's the kind of thing that just continues to get worse and worse and you have to be more and more intentional and good at it. We even have an internal communications team whose job it is, is to help communicate things internally that, you know, at this point. Right. So, right. um, 
so, but, but even there it becomes something that's a different mode of operation and that's, that is tough to do. So there's those internal limits like that, but I think you meant growth, um, from the outside and yes, companies, I think will hit limits just naturally. Um, a lot of times, so one way to hit a limit is because you had some marketing channels and you're at the limit of that channel. Yeah. Um, it's called inventory in, 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 uh, marketing speak, you've, you've, you have gotten all the inventory of that, let's say ad space that there is to get. And you hit that pretty quickly. Like you'd think, oh, look, AdWords is Google's so big. I can just grow off the AdWords forever, but actually you run into limits fairly quickly. It's like surprisingly quickly where there's just nothing else to buy. There's no other keywords that make any sense or they, they don't, they're just a trickle of stuff. You're yep. spending as much as you, you, you know, you can't really spend more money and get more stuff out of it or the spend is outrageous. And so it's just not, not feasible. Um, th there aren't like you would think, well, search volume must be going up and up, but it is not search volume is not going up and up for every keyword. It's not true. So, so there's not necessarily natural search growth that would make the amount of traffic from search, um, or ads, uh, grow. So given that like you reach a limit pretty fast of what your little percentage of the percentage of the percentage could be of that. And, yeah. uh, and, and it can be surprising, like, wait, we're only spending eight K or 80 K or whatever it is in, in, in a month in AdWords. And I, and I, I literally could not get more. If I spent double as much, I still couldn't get more sales. Like, wow, that was fast and it's not growing over time. So that's one way that your growth might be limited is that in the marketing, um, channels that was working for you, you're simply at its limit. So it just can't deliver more growth than that. That's one limit. A second limit that's really common is, um, cancellation rates being too high for recurring revenue businesses. So yep, sure. a lot of times I see people saying like, oh yeah, we're doing great. Our cancellation is now only 5%. It was 7%. And I hear that and just think you're dead. You're not even a recurring revenue business really, because half the people that sign up will be gone within one year. How recurring is that? No, this is a this is a fundamental problem with the business. That could be the product's not doing its job. It could be you're not getting the right customers in. It could be you don't have sufficient features. It could be the problem isn't that good. It could be the prices are too high or even too low. It could be the competition is good. Like there's all kinds of reasons why people might be convinced to sign up in the first place. So you said something right. <laughs> you did something right. And yet they just leave in droves, which means you're doing something very wrong. Something is a misfit. And to me, if, if your cancellation rate is like 5% or, or really even 4% or more, um, that probably is what I was referring to as your biggest problem. That's probably it. You have to find out why is it that this is not sticky. Um, but a lot of times people don't see it as even a problem. They're just like, it's fine. I'm, I have small businesses. They churn. And yes, small businesses churn at a higher rate than large businesses, but that is a, that will kill you. And you won't grow very fast because that churn will be faster, will catch up to you faster than your marketing growth will grow in part because of what I just said about the limits of those channels, but there's no limit to cancels as you get more customers, more of them will leave. And so the, the cancellations in a mathematically catch up and stop growth. So high cancellation rate, which some people don't realize is high, but it is, that can be one, that can be another reason why growth is limited. And then what's, what's another the reason is just the need. like, I, I think a lot, especially in WordPress, you have a lot of products that are not solving a problem that very many people have, or like it's, it's, it's hyper niche, yeah. um, which is fine to build a company, totally fine. But then you're going to hit this growth limit because that's how big the niche is. Right. So it's, it's not like a criticism. It's just a fact that, oh, well then, then growth is going to end pretty soon because it's, uh, it's a niche and it might be profitable. And great and it might be a fantastic business no worries unless you wanted it to grow in which case well maybe you're in such in a small pond that that's all there is to do um yep. or or it effectively is because of competition so you may be in an area like seo or something that's very big relatively big but the competition is so good of all competition of all kinds everywhere is so good that the part where you can carve out your own space ends up being small that could be another reason why so it could be that the the area, your position, your niche is too is so small that growth um, stops. And again, you, you can decide whether that's actually a problem or not, but it's just an observation. Cancellation, I think, is more of a problem, not just because of the growth, but because it means people aren't happy. <laughs> that's the problem, is that people are, for whatever reason, not happy with the product. Like that, that's why you should care, <laughs> like even more than the growth, which is the other reason you should care. <laughs> oh, so question. I I, I asked it uh, like 
what percentage of of churn like uh, would you be comfortable with besides the zero? Because I don't want anybody to look to well, go. Well, no, but... no, zero is not possible. No, um, I think it does depend a little bit on the uh, on the vertical and the product. So, for example, um, let's say you're a product. Let, let's say you're e-commerce. Like you 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 have a, I don't know an assemblage of WooCommerce plugins and that creates a store that's ideal for some kind of vertical or something like that. Yeah, um, I would expect churn there to be very low because I would expect that once people use all that in their store, that they're in a sense locked into it. Like they'd yeah. have to change their business model or rewrite their whole website to get rid of it. They're not likely to do that every single year. So for that, I would expect cancellation rate like 2%, 1%, something like that per month, I mean. Um, yeah. uh, uh, whereas um, let's say you're doing new e-commerce stores like shopify does or like woocommerce does out of the out of the box with brand new stores almost all those fail for and not because of shopify and not because of woocommerce (laughs) it's just most stores don't work out right and so so shopify for example has a seven percent monthly cancellation rate which is absolutely insane and devastating wall street has ragged them about that for a long time now I, i i understand yeah and 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 uh however it works for them because the inbound funnel is so big that they can overcome that but that's really rare and i don't know of another public company with even close to that not even one so that's great but like it's so rare that it's clearly it's the exception and only because of these these very different other aspects of the business the other factor there is the people that do stay automatically that do grow because the stores grow and so shopify makes more money off payments and off of other things you buy and so if the ones that remain grow enough and if the inbound is enough, you could overwhelm it. But again, it has to be a Shopify level of metrics there to overwhelm it, which simply proves how important it is that it not be seven because almost no one, you know, has, has those kind of other numbers. Is this going to last? Because seven is extremely high. Well, again, you, the people that think it's grow, and that's why it lasts. Because even if they added no new customers at all, they would still grow because existing customers grow. So oh, okay. yes, it can, so, but only because their other numbers are so outrageously good. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and there's always more people wanting to start stores. There's like this, this at the moment, never ending, but you can put that in quotes, but at the moment, a never ending stream yeah, yeah, of people but, who want to create a store. So I say the same thing. true, it hangs together, but again, almost no, you can't tell that story of almost any other company anywhere in WordPress or out otherwise. So when you say that you go, oh, okay. Then, then you can't just replicate that model. That's like saying, I'll just be like Apple or Amazon. No, like <laughs> one-offs, you don't just yeah. replicate that. That's silly, you know? And so, so it just, it just proves the point. So I would then say like in enterprise, you want it less than 1% per month. Like if you're selling to big logos, those should be like 10 year, um, kind of customers. Um, mm-hmm. whereas with SMB, I think two to 3% is more reasonable because things will just happen. The company goes out of business. The project ends they don't have budget for this anymore and, and so two to three percent for small business more like one percent or even less uh per month for uh for like enterprise but i mean almost no wordpress business is targeting the enterprise anyway so it's maybe it doesn't matter but just for just for reference it's happening more and more but it's not to the scale that it's uh in, at least in, in my experience that it, it really makes a blip in the in the total just yet um no, those those are interesting insights. There's um there's, I, I think for anyone listening, there's a lot to learn from um the perspective and 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 numbers you're uh, you're offering. Um let me say one thing about the enterprise because this is something I see a lot in WordPress, but even outside of WordPress, I think it's useful to point out. When we yeah. say selling to the enterprise, I think a lot of people think, oh, but Microsoft bought one of my things for one of their sites. So I sell to the enterprise. And that's incorrect. Yeah. So at a big company, there will always be little teams that buy whatever. They buy everything. And so a lot of times when you're a new startup founder, you put the product out and the companies are buying it. You never heard of those companies before because they're small. And you're like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> you know, and it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. Google, someone from Google buys it. And you're like, dude. And then someone from Microsoft I'm buys it. Someone from Adobe. And you're like, you know what? Maybe we should sell to the enterprise because look, Google and they're buying it already. Maybe we yeah, should sell yeah. to the enterprise, and that's completely wrong. Yeah, but it's, it, everyone thinks that I thought it myself at SmartBear. It turned out at SmartBear that the enterprise was right, but that meant we were selling like million dollar deals 
at a time to an Adobe. That's an actual enterprise deal. So that was right there, but it was different. So what, what happens is teams at these places will buy kind of almost anything. And it doesn't mean that you can sell, you know, in, in a large way to them. So as long as the teams or people at the big logos, as long as they're okay with the way you do business, the product as it is now and so forth, that's great. You take them as a customer. That does not mean you're selling to the enterprise because they're only paying a hundred bucks a month, a thousand bucks a month. That's not enterprise. Enterprise is like, you have to fill out their crazy security thing. You have to be ISO and SOC 2. You have to um, stream security events into their centralized security server or else they won't buy it. Of course, there's MSAs and the legal documents you have to do. Also, like you need to be charging at least hundreds of thousands a year, probably more, probably more like millions. Um, You have to handle, you have to do their single sign-on. I mean, when you're doing all of that, then you're selling to the enterprise. And so uh, in, in that sense, in that sense that they're a target customer and you're solving their enterprise needs as opposed to just one little team. So there's nothing wrong with the one little team. In fact, it's wonderful and you should totally do that, but you should not confuse that with, oh, we have enterprise customers. We sell to the enterprise. No, that's not what it is. And in WordPress, there's not much of that. We, of course, we do. Part of why I can rattle that off is everything I just said, we do. <laughs> and so we we can have enterprise customers because we do all of that stuff. And uh, wow, that's cool. But that's when you're selling to the enterprise. Yeah. I've, I've been on the other end of uh, of this equation. I've worked at a large insurance company where we uh, were enterprise and uh, had software with vendors come in. Um, and prices uh, for, for you to be considered a a a, uh, a vendor, like a proper vendor, uh, we're talking uh, at, at least a million um, in, in revenue. Uh, before that, we're just playing and testing and, you know, figuring things out. But once we were committed, so one of the things we introduced was a new uh, HR system. Uh, we had folks coming in from Oracle, PeopleSoft, uh, uh, SAP. Uh, that's an entirely different level of what we yeah. call enterprise. That's what enterprise is. Yeah. And when you hear that in an analyst or Wall Street or a VC, that's what it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, a good distinction. You know, I think we <laughs> forget that. Uh, yeah. And again, there's yeah. nothing like, again, no value judgment. It's not like this is good and this is bad. Not that at all. No, just, no, but, just but clarifying like what, what you know, what are you doing? It's and it's important, it's important to clarify so that you know uh, when they ask for something bizarre, you know like, oh, wait, no, I'm not doing that. That's not my target audience. I say no to yeah. that. I only say yeah. yes if they want the product as it is. If they want you know, what, what I'm targeting, which it goes back to strategy and like, who is the target? What, how do I win? If you don't have a clear picture of what that is, then you don't know whether you should maybe make that random feature or not. You're scatterbrained. But if you know, like, here's my customer and some of them may come from Adobe, but that doesn't mean Adobe is like target, right? No, no, that, uh, again, that's a great distinction and, uh, more people should be aware of uh, what goes into actually enterprise. Yeah. Um, um, I want to, want to ask you a few more things about, uh, WP engine. Cause, um, one of the things that's going to have to fuel your growth is the features, the stuff that you offer, right? It's not just the hosting. It's right. You have a whole suite. There's, right. um, there's themes, there's plugins, there's, there's all these things that are additional to the actual hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, in terms of hosting, one of the things I find interesting because it solves a particular problem uh, is headless. Is there something you can share about that? What what made you decide to, you have hosting, you have plugins, you have themes, so you already have a pretty wide suite of services mm-hmm. you can offer. Um, headless is, a is an, I would say, a, a, a separate beast in, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What made you decide to jump into that one? Well, it's a, it's a secular trend in web development that it seemed to us would be wise to be leaders in rather than be disrupted by. Uh-huh. So headless is a disruption to work to WordPress. And that may sound like I'm exaggerating because after all, if WordPress is the CMS inside of a headless system, how is it disruptive to WordPress? But the answer is because it relegates WordPress to this lower amount of value where it's the content management system, but it isn't the front end. And so does that make WordPress a replaceable component? Does it make, it certainly makes Gutenberg obsolete perhaps, although we're making Gutenberg relevant and headless, by the way, we're taking the value of Gutenberg and bringing it, but we're doing that on purpose. So 
without us doing that, just let's just say, um, all the great things in Gutenberg lost, all the things that themes do lost because headless replaces that. Most plugins, not all, most of them, the value's lost. So why use WordPress? I mean, if you're throwing out themes and plugins and Gutenberg, like eventually you're kind of throwing out everything sort of like, why are we still, you know, so that's why it's so disruptive. Um, if you look at the technologies, uh, the other technologies that, um, are alternatives to WordPress, like Wix and Squarespace and Webflow and Drupal, some of those are gaining ground like Wix. Some are losing ground like Drupal, like Drupal is, is, is shrinking relatively speaking in market share. But okay, all of those are alternatives to WordPress, search, certainly. And when you chart them, the thing that is the largest of all of them and growing the fastest is headless sites. So if any alternative to WordPress, um, so of all the alternatives to WordPress, it's the one that that's, um, it's not like it's all the rest put together. It's not quite that big, but it is the, it is bigger than the rest of them. So it's the number one thing you might say that is disruptive to WordPress, a disruptive alternative. And to us, it's like, wait a minute. It, it would be, but it should be the other way around. It should be that the, a WordPress-based headless architecture should be the, a great way to build websites for anyone who's choosing that kind of architecture. Mm -hmm. Because WordPress does have a lot to offer, but it obviously wasn't designed for headless in the first place, of course. Yeah. Um, and so what if we made WordPress so that it was designed for headless? And of course, that would all be GPL, open source, et cetera, et cetera. So I say we do it, I mean, you know, in the way that's appropriate, meaning open source community, et cetera. But if we did that and helped WordPress be the best open, the best open source headless CMS also, that would turn that disruption into a growth area for WordPress broadly. And then if we have a product, which we do, Atlas, um, at WP Engine to do all the, the platform and hosting and development and and the builds and deployment and auto scaling and you know all the other stuff that goes into that. If we do yeah. all the above, then that should be a great product line for us. So let's give back to WordPress and the community in all that open source stuff. And then let's sell the product that's back to our, you know, the way we normally make money, which is you, you build and host with us and we'll offer that. And that will be a way that we can monetize um, this activity. So turning this, this disruption into a growth area for us in terms of our product and, but also for the community because of all the open source stuff that's in those projects. And, and, and that's, um, I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, I think one of the things, uh, part of your stack there and correct me if I'm wrong is uh, WP GraphQL. Yeah. And, um, um, I've only had it, uh, I've only used it in one, in one project myself yet, um, because that particular project really needed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for those listening who are not fully aware of maybe even, maybe even go as far as explain headless in your particular context, because I think there's a few. Um, um, let's say, uh, platform decisions you can make and how you have it work exactly. But mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit more about the stack and where WP GraphQL uh, fits in there? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So a better word was probably decoupled. Um, so the idea like is that, that WordPress is still the right tool for the job for all the content management. So that means writing stuff, editing it, that workflow, uh, tagging and categorization, um, uh, SEO, like there's just a million things you do to manage the content, quote unquote, like that a marketer or content mm -hmm. editor does. And then WordPress is still right for that. But then there's this head and this is hence headless, um, which is which by that is meant when the browser requests a page, a URL. And so stuff happens, <laughs> you know, something's rendered, maybe it's cached, there's images and JavaScript and who knows, <laughs> right? That stuff, that's what's called the head. And so the idea of a headless architecture is that WordPress doesn't do that job. WordPress does the CMS job, but doesn't do the job of serving the content that some other component, some other technical component somewhere is doing that job. Yep. And as you point out there, there's different things you could do for that, different answers to, well, what's that other component then? What is, what is it? So for example, you can have a fully static site where that other component is that the pages have been rendered as well as the JavaScript, CSS, and so forth images that they've been pre-rendered and stuffed into some kind of static hosting thing like S3. And then the website is pointed straight out of S3. So it's completely static, but it's fast and it's uh, scalable. It has high uptime. It's secure, which are all very, very nice uh, attributes after all. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, it's static. Boo. Oh, no, there's only so much I can do with it. And on the plus side, 
well, all those attributes are awesome. So there's many sites where that's the right trade-off. And, and then WordPress becomes where you manage, but something like a static S3 type of thing is where you host. And so that's called static sites uh, a lot of times. Um, yeah. But there's also more dynamic things. The most popular one by far is called Next.js. So next.js um, made by Vercel. Um, and that's a React-based framework for making websites. And it is the plurality of headless sites use that. Maybe the majority in some areas, but certainly the plurality use Next.js. And so this is dynamic. So every time that you hit a page, it could do something different. Um, although it also has caching and stuff for the cases where you don't need it to be so dynamic. And it has lots of features. Um, for example, it's easy to make an API as well. So you could have like your content site, but also an API in there. Um, that's nice. So it has, has various features that are nice for web projects. So most of the Atlas customers use Next and uh, just in general on the internet, again, um, slightly over half of all the uh, major headless projects use, uh, use Next. So that's, that's sort of the winner. There's also things like Gatsby and others, m many others actually, but Next is, the, yep. is, the, is sort of the winner. Um, so, uh, and that's built in JavaScript. So you need to run something called Node.js and you, know, can, you can go on and on with the technology that's needed. The point is the technology is much more complex because you want it to be dynamic, which means it's running code. So it becomes mm -hmm. more complicated than static sites, but there's so much more that you can do. So as, as you say, there's, there's different ways the head could manifest. <laughs> Um, but yeah. the idea is that there's these components that are decoupled from each other. Um, and so you can pick sort of the right tool for the job, uh, however you see the right tool being. Uh, and there's also alternative CMSs to WordPress out there, like Contentful. And there's some others, um, which normally in WordPress we don't see because it's only for this headless or decoupled environment that they're relevant. So um, uh, Drupal also has been very active in this for a while. Like for, for years and years, Drupal has put has said Drupal is API first and has had headless um, in, in, um, uh, uh, kind of support, you might say, built in from, from scratch. And they've had that for many years. So they, they were on the forefront of that. Again, they're losing market share. So, you know, you could argue whether that helped or not, but they certainly have it's had identified that early and still do identify that as being important. Yeah. And and uh, so WP GraphQL. Um, oh, yeah. It ends. Yeah, so so if if I'm making my front end in this Next.js and that's sitting in some Node servers, those aren't that's not even the same infrastructure and hardware as WordPress. So somehow mm -hmm. that front end has to talk to WordPress and get the content. So if I hit the home page, I need whatever the most recent ten things or some kind of post or something. <laughs> I need to go ask WordPress what to do here. So yep. for any URL, I need to you know get data from WordPress, and so that's where GraphQL comes in. So somehow that friend is going to use an API to talk to WordPress. And there's different choices. You could use the REST API, which is built in and it's good. But the, the GraphQL is a different um, type of API, a different protocol. And it has a lot of interesting benefits, which makes it uh, nice. It does. Um, the best benefit, I think, is uh, that it's self-documenting so that you can use tools to build queries just by, by pointing and clicking at stuff. And then just yeah. take that query and throw it in the code. And the, and the queries um, can run across different kinds of objects. So in other words, with REST, it's like one request to get the page and then another request to get information about the author, like their name, and then another request to get some comments and another request you know, to get some I don't know, tag. And so you're making all these requests and stuff. But with GraphQL, you can make a single query that says, I want this post and I want these fields about the posts and I want to reach into the associated author. I pick out these fields from them, and then I want to reach into the categories and you know, and you can build that and even graphically and test it uh, separately, which is really nice, like in in the browser. And then when you have the query you want, you're like, all right, now you paste that in your code in in JavaScript, and you get all this in one shot. Um, and it's so easy to debug and understand. So I think that makes it just so much more user friendly and efficient at the same time. I I think it's one of the it's one of the things that, uh, when I first encountered it and had to sort of get myself familiar with, I was like, wait, I can just pick my query as I'm building it. How, yeah. how does this work? How, <laughs> what, what kind of voodoo is this? Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, if you have to now do something in, in REST or even in any other way, you have to cobble everything together and that'll be then your, op your main uh, generated object and that you will present. 
but with uh, with GraphQL, you can just essentially say, um, yeah, just pick and choose what you want and make that into one query, and you build that query as you are creating the code. And I was like, whoa, mind blown here. What is this? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful stack that then that with GraphQL and um, and Atlas, uh, essentially, uh, you're taking care of the hosting of the WordPress part. You're taking care of the build and deploy, right? And you're providing essentially. So, how much of an integration is WP GraphQL? Can you build something on Atlas and not use it at all? Does that yes? Does that make sense? Or yeah, you can. You can. Most people do use it, but yeah, you absolutely don't. You're not required to do anything on Atlas. You're not required to do anything in particular. So there's some things like you said that are just nice. They're natural, nice. A lot of people do it, but you're not required to do any of those things. Yeah. So. It, it still is a lot of freedom for anyone um, right. wanting to go whichever way they want. So if they right, want to right, right. and ignore uh, GraphQL, they can uh, yep. have, have at it. Yep. So what made you, de- what made you decide to say um, we're branding that as a separate sort of, uh, uh, not an entity, I think, but it's most certainly a, a, a brand in itself, I think? Yeah, it's, a, it's just a different product line because all of the... Um, all of the JavaScript stuff is all new. So the fact that there's even a build step, WordPress doesn't have a build step, but in JavaScript you do. Um, yeah. to de- de- we deploy that on, on completely different kinds of infrastructure. Um, the pricing is different because the infrastructure is different. Um, the software that we make, th- so there's, there is stuff in WordPress, of course, but there's also JavaScript libraries that also are open source, by the way, that we also provide, that's new. Um, so there was just a whole lot of stuff that's not WordPress. It's decoupled websites. And so we just felt like having a product name for that as separate from managed WordPress hosting just made sense. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't, but just more curious in terms of uh, yeah. at, at what point do you decide to have a sub-brand under, um, and I guess there's um, there's probably already quite a few sub-brands on their WP Engine, right? Um, yeah. If I... W- could I challenge you and, 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 and try to name them all or? <laughs> well, you know, there's the flywheel stuff and that yeah. includes things like local. Then there was the delicious brain stuff. So there's a number of products there. Um, yep. ACF is one of them. Um, and then there's, you know, of course, a lot of other ones. Um, WP Migrate Pro. I mean, there's, a, there's, you know, a number of, a number of those. Um, and then, uh, but I would say like local and ACF and flywheel probably have the most users like because all of those have hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people who use it so those are probably the most obvious ones yeah and then there's uh studio press yeah there's the studio press and genesis stuff um we usually just call it genesis because technically genesis is the framework and studio press was where you bought themes but i know that like that's a that's a pedantic difference that doesn't <laughs> we would care about, but nobody else cares about, right? So yes, yeah. those two kind of lump together, you might say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. With Frost being a theme in there, for example. Yep. So yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a very wide array of uh, of solutions. Um I'm 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 my conclusion from this is that you're you're looking at the market from a different perspective than hey, this is me just hosting, or this is us right. just hosting. Right. Uh, obviously it's way more than just you. Um, like, where does the future of WordPress bring you when you start thinking about what is the next thing you're preparing for? Um, is there anything on the horizon yet, or we have, we we are not planning on moving away from WordPress in any way? So, with Atlas and Headless, um, we stretch into he- we stretch into the Headless world, but WordPress is still the crown jewel in the center of that, right? So yep. that's an example of staying with WordPress, but going to an adjacent place. So that sort of thing, yes. Um, but even there, it's not like we're launching new product lines all the time, you know? Like there's so much to do there. Like that's that's a whole career in itself. It's a, it's multiple teams, has been yeah. for a few years. It's gonna continue to be, like they're not gonna go branch off and do other stuff. So to me, it's more like WordPress, yeah, of course there's the hosting, yes, but there's the whole developer experience around that. There's designing, building, um, launching and deploying, troubleshooting, managing a bunch of sites. The, these are the things people do. And yeah. so we're going to be making more and more um, 
products and features uh, in those areas of like what people do as they build and create and launch and manage WordPress sites. So yeah. we're not looking to look, move beyond WordPress, but we are looking to deepen um, the functionality within that those areas. Yeah, I, I know, and you already mentioned them, um, uh, Frost WP, Frost theme uh, is catering to full site editing. Yeah, yeah. Run. Do you have any any special plans, ideas on on how I don't know how to how to facilitate uh, your clientele to use that better or different? Is there do you have any plans in that direction? Well, we certainly don't have plans to force someone to use one thing or another. Just like we have headless, but we're not trying to force people to change to headless right. or something, right? So it's more like, look, there there are many projects where people or many projects where where um, where a full site editing type of experience is correct for it and or people who want that experience. Same thing with headless. Headless yeah. is not the right architecture for everything, but when it is, <laughs> comma, then we want to be part of that, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, if, if WordPress is 43% of the internet and if we're a top 10 website uh, platform on the internet, we're going to have a variety of people. And so there's not going to be a one size fits all in, when you have that kind of scope. Right. So it's good to have page building. It's also good to not have page building. It's good to have traditional WordPress. It's also good to have headless. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. And look, if this was 13 years ago, it would be very bad if we had this many different things because we wouldn't be big enough to put focus on each one of these things. That would be yeah. wrong. But at this point, if we have, you know, between 50 and 100 people on Atlas, that is enough people where you could say, oh, okay. Well, if that's the commitment you're going to make to that kind of product line, then you can then you can do that. And then if you also have 50 to 100 people on something else, and also 200 people on this other thing, oh, that's the kind of, that's the kind of scale where yeah, it would be okay to do each of those things. So, I, I think it was Ben Horowitz used the analogy of like a uh, barrels and bullets, meaning if you have enough a, a team, you have like a barrel and a gun, and you can shoot bullets through it. And yeah. um, if you add, if you want to do something else, you need a whole nother barrel and more bullets. And so if you, if you do that, then you can, then you can shoot at another thing. Otherwise you just have to pick one place to shoot or else it's, 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 it's not good. So if you have enough pe uh, investment, meaning money, meaning people, meaning time, attention, energy, but also the sales and marketing, also the, the service, right? All that stuff. But yep. if, if you really are going to put all that stuff on it and you can afford to, then you can add another thing. And so as you, you were asking before, as you scale and you mentioned scale is like nine or 10 people. Okay. But as you get to a hundred, 200, 300 or 500 people, then you can start asking, well, if we can put 50 to hundred people on a new topic, you really could expand what the business is. And, and, yeah. and that would be rational because it's not some weird side project. You actually can, you actually have enough people to, to do it justice. And so it's okay. And not a defocusing. Um, an interesting question is, well, what would that be? Because you could pick anything. We could go do real estate or something, <laughs> you know, like what, how do you pick what the other thing should be? Yeah. And there, what I, like an interesting model is to think this way. Um, once you are at some scale, you have 100, 300, 500 people or something, you have things like you have lots of customers, you have revenue, you have a brand for real. Um, you have existing customers you could sell things into. You have sales and marketing motions that seem to be working, <laughs> you know? Like you have, yeah. you have some assets, right? So once you're there and you're asking, how do we keep growing? Like you said, and the answer might be more products because again, everything runs into a limit. It's just some things, some limits are bigger than others, but everything's got a limit. So, yeah. so at some point you have to start adding products in order to grow. <clears throat> and so how do you think about that? Um, so I think about it in, in terms of adjacencies in the following sense, think about just buckets and this is not formal. You can pick whichever buckets you want, but think of a bucket like support, Another one for marketing, another one for sales, another one for engineering, another one for product. Maybe there's more, but let's just say those. And for any product idea you have, you could ask, if we were to do this product, for each one of these buckets, would it be pretty easy for this bucket to just do it? Or will it require significant change or retraining or hiring or expansion or, you know, something that's like a big yep. deal? Yep. Um, so with something like headless, you could say, um, well, there's still WordPress. So we have some new infrastructure to do for node. 
But actually, the infrastructure we use for WordPress, some of the stuff like Kubernetes and containers translates well. And so, you know what? Like, there is work to do there. So maybe that's a medium because there is stuff to do, but it's sort of in our general wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, what about in product? Well, we're selling to the same people. It's the same agencies that we already sell to. It's the same developers. They're just learning new tech. So understanding the customer and what they need, we're already good at that. So that's a check. Not that there's nothing to do. It's just that this is already in our wheelhouse. What yeah. about sales? Again, we sell to the same people. So it's new tech to learn, but we already know what to say. So that's a check. And what about marketing? And what about you know support? Oh, support's harder because if you're going to be supporting this new JavaScript stuff and everyone knows PHP, that's actually a problem. Like you may not have the people on staff to support JavaScript. So, okay, that one might be red, you know, or a problem or something like that. Anyway, so that's the kind of process you can go through. Again, it's very simple, like good, medium, bad, or, you know, six bucket. So if you have a product where it's most, almost all good with just a couple of things you'd have to do, then I would call that an adjacent product, meaning this is leveraging the assets you have. And there's just some work you need to do and you know what it is. Do you want to take that bet? Do you want to take that risk? On the other hand, you could imagine a product where most of the buckets are like, oh, we'd have to do something very different. That's not adjacent. So it's probably a bad idea. It's just way too disruptive and it doesn't leverage all the strengths that you've built up. So why should you do that? It doesn't leverage the things you're good at. Like, what, what are you doing? You know, so uh, that's a simple but very effective framework for thinking about what could be my second or third product. In other words, what could leverage what I have um, so that I, I do some work, but then, but then use leverage the stuff that I have, then that's a sensible product. I, I totally get it. I think you, in, uh, in, in, in that answer, uh, not only summarize the two main topics we discussed uh, in this podcast, but also uh, perfectly explained um, the acquisition strategy that uh, WP Engine has had and probably still has, um, and explains the, the 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 takeovers for Delicious Brains, uh, ACF, and and Studio Press and everything. Yeah, yeah, um, and that, that's right. That that you you do look for that for uh, for acquisitions. I think for acquisitions, a good way to think of it is when a company's buying another. Why are they doing that? There's a couple of reasons, but what I think it boils down to is that the buying company has, the buyer, that is, they have a strategy they want to execute. They already have the strategy they want to execute. They've already decided what they want to do. Yeah. And then the question becomes, do you buy, do you build, do you partner? How do you execute this thing that you think you need to do? Yeah. And buying generally gets you something faster, you know, it gets you down the path faster, but comes with yeah. other challenges like integrations and, and, um, uh, and it's usually more expensive, um, but you get it now. And so is that a good trade in, t in time and money? So th th it's not, it it's not obvious, but it's, 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 uh, that's, that's what you get. And so if you decided something like, oh, we need developer tools in this area, well, buying developer tools that are already successful in that area is an obvious way to trade money for time yep. and for risk, because we could say, oh, we'll just make a competitor to you name it. And then we'll win. Oh, will you? Will you really? <laughs> that's not a go. That's not a given at all. So it's going to take no, no. years, and there's a high chance that you don't succeed, or you know, it's not as good as what you hoped, right? So why you trade money for time and lower risk because you know what it is already, and so that's that's the trade. But the key is coming back to this: there's already a strategy that they want to implement, and is buying a good way to implement it. So even in the case of like. Oh, a company could buy another to enter a new market or to, whether that's geographically or a different product. That's a very common reason, but they would do this because they already had a strategy that says we want to enter that geography. They already had a strategy that said we want to enter this other product area. And then buying would be a way to, to implement that strategy. If they don't already have the strategy, they're not going to buy you. And this is a, this is a, uh, something that people who are selling their companies often don't understand. They just say like, well, I'm selling my WordPress company, so I'll just go to Automatic and WP Engine and, and whoever, because that's who buys companies. It's like, yes, but is it is it aligned with the strategy of those companies to be doing this? If not, this we're not going to just decide to go in some new direction because you're selling your company. That's not how it's going to no. work. It's going to be we already have a strategy, and you fit it by de-risking, speeding it up. This you know yep. maybe bring customers in. These are various ways in which you're making the strategy or implementing the strategy way better. 
course, it's hard to know what someone else's strategy is. So to be fair, well, it's, right. you know, but one of the things that that can do is when you walk into those discussions, if you're trying to sell your company, knowing that it, you need to fit their strategy, one of the things I would do in those first meetings is I would say, hey, what is your strategy? What are you trying mm-hmm. to accomplish in the next three years? And let them just t- tell you what they're trying to accomplish. Then later, you can come back and maybe meeting number two and explain how you de-risk or speed up or otherwise make a better implementation of their existing strategy. So go find out in that meeting because that will make your pitch better. <laughs> that's how they're thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, awkward. I like it. I like it. That's, that's great advice uh, for anybody thinking, uh, indeed, uh, this is my company now and I'm working myself towards uh, selling and uh, knocking on the door of Jason. It's probably not the most straightforward thing to do. Have a, have a plan, understand what you're doing and uh, understand uh, anyone uh, looking to buy that, uh, yeah, you need to match their strategy. Wonderful insights. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time uh, to appear on m- my podcast. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun.